The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour of a Friday. Happy to be there. Glad you were with us. We're also very glad to be working once again with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you doing today? Hey, doing pretty well, and uh, I'm glad to be back here. It's good to hear from you guys. We missed you last week, and, and Nathan did a wonderful job. So you trained him well. And we are also happy to have you back. Oh, well, I, it's again good to be back. And, uh, you know, he's my little young protege. He's my little young Padawan. Or is that what the, the Star Wars reference? He's a lot I'm taller dating, than me, too. So I gotta I'm dating myself here, but do you refer to him as Grasshopper? Oh, hi, Danielson. Hi, Danielson. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you back. And we're very delighted that now, Suzanne, you're the keeper of the numbers here. What are we talking? Number nine. Is this magical number nine? For, number nine. For Dr. Nine. Bernie Siegel. Number nine. Amazing. He's an, he's an amazing physician and equally a philosopher, a deep thinking philosopher who just knows the right thing to say about any time you ask him anything. And he's got more stories than we could possibly fill an hour with. And still, we always learn something new when Dr. Bernie joins us. He's our favorite doctor that we've never had a gown on that opens in the back. Or the front. That's right. <laughs> Those are my let's favorite. Get, let, let's, <laughs> let's introduce this man properly and bring him back for visit number nine. I will do the honors today. Dr. Bernie Siegel, who prefers to be called Bernie, not Dr. Siegel, was born in Brooklyn, New York. He attended Colgate University and Cornell University Medical College. He holds membership in two scholastic honor societies, Phi Beta Kappa and Alpha Omega Alpha, and graduated with honors. His surgical training took place at Yale New Haven Hospital, West Haven Veterans Hospital, and the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. He retired from practice as an assistant clinical professor of surgery at Yale of general and pediatric surgery in 1989 to speak to patients and their caregivers. In 1978, Bernie originated Exceptional Cancer Patients, a specific form of individual and group therapy utilizing patients' drawings, dreams, images, and feelings. ECAP is based on carefrontation. There's a term, carefrontation, a safe, loving, therapeutic confrontation which facilitates personal lifestyle changes, personal empowerment, and healing of the individual's life. The physical, spiritual, and psychological benefits which followed led to his desire to make everyone aware of his or her healing potential. He realized exceptional behavior is something of which we are all capable. And so for the ninth time, we say hello to Dr. Bernie Siegel. So glad to have you with us today, sir. Okay, I'm ready to go. Um, first of all, the ninth time is very symbolic. My and wife how, died why is that? over a year ago. And her birth date is nine nine. And okay, very good. I can't tell you how mystical things have happened. I, well, what happens when the person you love dies? My heart became irregular, mm. and I went down to the hospital. I walk in, and they said, in the emergency room, you're in room nine. Then they said, we have a bed upstairs for you, eight one nine. The wristband that identifies you when you're in the hospital, all the numbers added up to nine, plus the number eight. See, numbers, who was it? Jung said numbers have quantity and meaning, and eight is a new beginning. 
So when I look at my wristband, I see eight and then, you know, six, three, seven, two, four, four, one, everything adding up to nine. I knew my wife was saying, don't worry, you'll be fine. Um, it, it, it's been amazing uh, that it happens. And I'm writing another book now in a sense about some of these mystical things. Well, creation is a mystery, but um, as long as I'm talking about numbers, we were married on the 11th. I have found a dime and a penny in the most bizarre places around our house, in a bird bath, uh, even on the counter as I checked out at the supermarket, um, you know, just lying there. And uh, it's no coincidence. I know that we do connect um, with those who have died. I mean, the consciousness can. And part of what I was saying at first was we got to write a, a, a manual for life uh, because you buy a refrigerator, they give you a book to go with it. You know how to take care of it. But when you give birth to a child, they don't say, all right, now read what's in this book. So you bring it up right. Um, and you have a full life. And I think that's what we need to do uh, is really come up with a manual for life. So you understand, you know, the basic things as well as the mystical things, that they are real. And, uh, you know, how many critics I had back 40 years ago, you know, this is crazy, that's crazy, that can't be true. And now everybody's writing books <laughs> about the things they were telling me were crazy. And one more thing, my sense of humor. Before you came on the air, you said to each other, how are you doing today? How are you? And I always say to people, don't ask me that. You know, you go into a store, how are you today? I said, don't ask me that. Why bring up all my problems? When I come in, just look at me and say, you look very well today. And I had just gone into a store, and this young lady who's behind the cash register how are you today? So I start my sermon. Don't say, how are you today? I've got lots of problems. I don't want to have to think about them. I'm coming out shop, and everybody in the store is staring at me, you know, like uh, maybe he didn't take his medicine this morning. But an old-timer in the store came out of the back, and she saw me and walked over and said, you're looking so well today. And the whole store burst out laughing. But it's, believe me, it, it gives you a different feeling when you walk in and people say, you're looking well today, instead of, how are you doing? Because when I was in, this was another phase of my life, when the clerks would say, when you're checking out, how are you today? I'd say, I'm depressed. I've run out of my antidepressants, and my doctor's on vacation, so I can't refill my prescription. And you would be absolutely amazed. If you don't believe me, start doing it. How many people in the store, as well as the clerks, said, come to my locker, I have six antidepressants. The people in the line behind you, open pocketbooks, will these help you? And my <laughs> wife said to me, you think it's a joke. You're not paying attention to the people who are talking to you. It's not funny to them. So I really began to listen and realized, uh, you know, it wasn't funny. And how many people in the world are depressed is unbelievable and taking medication. Instead of having, you know, with something that you do talk about, your problem solved. Because the ads from the, the drug companies are, you know, 
this is literal, one of the drug companies. I was very depressed. I went to see my physician. He prescribed an antidepressant. I feel better now. I wrote to the drug company. I said, excuse me. I've had the loss of a loved one. I'm depressed. I go to my doctor. He doesn't say, why are you depressed? What's happening in your life? He just says, here's a pill for depression. Change the ad. Put in another line. So the doctor says, what's happening in your life? Then he could finish with, I discussed it with him. He prescribed, you know, the drug. I feel better now. They never changed the ad. But that is how medicine works. You know, it's dangerous to ask me a question because I never stop talking. But let me add this, and then I'll try to take a breath. I sent an article to a medical journal years ago about dreams and drawings and the incredible information you could get from it. I mean, literally, anatomy and drawings. And people didn't know what they were drawing, you know. Uh, it could be a tree representing a part of your body. It could be, because as a doctor, I know anatomy, so I see how it's been drawn. I sent it to a medical journal. <clears throat> it was sent back saying it's interesting, but it's not appropriate for a medical journal. So I sent it to a psychiatric journal. It came back again. It's appropriate, but it's interesting. We know all this. That's what disturbs me about medicine, and that happened years ago. What do I mean? You go into a doctor, you're caught up, cut into pieces. Oh, you got a head problem. Go to a psychiatrist. Oh, you got a, you know, a heart problem. Cardiologist. You go to your knee hurts. Okay. Well, now I'm not saying it's wrong to have specialists, but. We shouldn't be treated like the mechanical object. You know, your car has a problem. Sure, they find somebody in the garage who knows how to fix that problem. But the car doesn't have, you know, a life of emotion and things that make the body vulnerable. And I often say, and I always recommend this to people to do it themselves. When you have a problem, say to yourself, how would I describe this to someone else? What words would I use? And a lady who was about to be admitted to the hospital with severe migraine headaches, I said to her, what does it feel like? Pressure. So I did a meditation with her to relieve the pressure. I didn't ask her what it was in her life because she wasn't my patient. I was just trying to help her with her pain. Um, and we did the meditation, relieving pressure. A few minutes later, the nurse came over to me and said, it's a marriage. The headache's gone. She's on the way home now straighten out her marriage and suffering lady with cancer what are you going through i'm suffering how does that fit your life my parents committed to oh no first she said well i have cancer i said that's not my question how does suffering fit your life oh my parents committed suicide when i was a child i must have been a failure as a child you know and and that's what people become grateful for when you redirect their lives and wake them up to the things that need to be changed. And then they don't die when they're supposed to. Uh, right. <laughs> Which you have experienced with your, your patients, and uh, you've told those stories very illuminatingly over the years that we've been doing this show yeah. with you, Bernie. You know, I, I'm going to sound a little bit silly now, but I'm going to tell one on myself. You said, you know, these mechanical objects, they don't have, they don't participate in the life right. of emotions. It was 
just about a week ago when we had to replace our refrigerator. The one that we had when we moved into our home here in Sarasota, Florida, it served us well. And I will admit to you, Bernie, that I felt, I'm not saying I started weeping, but I felt touched that we had to say goodbye to this faithful refrigerator that gave its last for us. It made its last ice cube on our behalf. And uh, I felt like those guys, the astronauts uh, in Apollo 13, when they had to cram into the compartment and let the ship go, which was was so damaged, it was beyond repair. They simply had to maroon it and let it float off into space. And I remember them saying, she was a good ship. And as they hauled away the old refrigerator, I said, she was a good refrigerator. And I did feel emotional about it because we get attached to things as well as people when they serve us. Maybe that's part of the larger love of life. At least I hope it is. Yeah. It, yeah, all those things are meaningful and real. And I think when people open up, and, and I always say if you experience something, it's true, even if you can't explain it. So live by your experience, not your beliefs. Because they shut a lot of doors. But when you give experience a chance, then it happens. And I've learned to become a storyteller, too, just like you're saying, that people are changed by stories. When you talk about, oh, I read about a study that was done. Well, it was fully controlled. You know, where was it done? Oh, they're not, you know, they don't have a good reputation. But if you tell a story about somebody, people can't deny it. And it opens their minds, and then things happen. So that's why I never stop talking, because I'm telling stories versus statistics revealed. Yeah, I use statistics at times. But, you know, again, it shows the meaning of life. A study of Harvard students was done years ago. They were asked, did your parents love you? And they were all looked up when they were middle-aged. And those who said, yes, my parents loved me, 24% had suffered a major illness in the intervening years. Those who said, no, my parents didn't love me, 98% had. Wow. And that's something I learned in the office from a suicidal young woman. She said to me one day, you're my CD. I said, what are you talking about, I'm a CD? She said, you're my chosen dad. Mm. And when she said that to me, I started telling that to lots of people. If you need someone, I'll be your CD. And there are literally people alive today because I said that to them. And I told them I love them. You're a child of God. And, you know, it meant something to them. And they're alive today because of how they were abused by their parents, uh, often, you know, alcoholic parents, sexually abused, physically abused told to commit suicide. Imagine meeting people whose parents told them to go and commit suicide. Uh, it's just unbelievable that people are brought up that way. But that's like the antidepressant story. I mean, that's how they grew up. I didn't know this. You see, part of the problem is we don't share this with each other. Um, in school, I would say to the students, I want you all to write a suicide note for homework. And I want you to write a note on why you should love yourself. So why should you commit suicide and why should we love you? And bring them in tomorrow. You don't have to sign them. Uh, and then I would collect them at the front of the room and put the suicide pile on one side and the love on the other. And if you say to high school students which pile was higher, they'll all tell you the suicide pile. Um, 
But what would happen is the suicide rate goes down because they realize I'm not the only one. I don't have to lie when I have a black eye. You say I fell off my bike when it was really that my father punched me. You know, those kinds of stories. So once they realize you can talk to each other, you're not the only kid going through that. Then the classes became therapeutic because they talked to each other and helped each other. Bernie, I have never asked this of a physician before, and I think you're the perfect one for me to address this question to in regard to emotions and relationships between people, those who need care and the caregiver, and at the level at which you work, no less. Now, you went to Cornell University Medical College, which, interestingly enough, there, and if I'm wrong, correct me, but I believe Cornell is the only Ivy League school that was not founded under religious denominational auspices. Hmm. It was independent. And with that being the case, here you are, the spiritual philosopher, after being a physician for so long, and this developed apace. There, but here's the thing I want to know, Bernie. Is it true what I've heard from people over many years that to become a doctor— you go through at least a seminar, if not a, a theme in your medical training that is designed to get you to separate yourself emotionally from this machine, the body that you are treating, this wonderful human machine, and not get yourself so involved that you become somehow compromised. Is there a class about that to separate mind and body when you're becoming a doctor? No, it, it's part of the whole atmosphere. So it's not a separate class. I uh, always remember one doctor saying, there's nothing wrong with detached concern. I said, what the hell are you talking about? How can you have detached concern? You know? I mean, if you're going to care for somebody, it's got to be a meaningful caring, but not detaching yourself. And I have hanging around the room in front of me famous paintings. Uh, of doctors with patients. And the doctor is always doing one thing, sitting in a chair with his chin in his hand, never touching. And one was done by the father, uh, Sir Luke Fildes, it's called The Doctor. The doctor's in their home, the child is dying on Christmas Day. The parents are in the back crying, the doctor's sitting with his hand in his chin looking at the dying child. And my thought was either take the kid's hand and hold it or tell the parents to pick up their dying child and hug it and love it. There are a lot of kids who don't die in the pediatric uh, newborn unit when they say, all right, you know, your child's dying. We don't have to keep it in isolation anymore. So here, you can hold your baby. And in one case, the mother took the baby, put it against her bare chest, started suckling from her nipple and came back to life. That's no coincidence or accident, because it's what happens in the body when you touch and handle uh, immune function, everything. But what, as I say, it's a detached concern. Uh, how about caring? <laughs> the other is that I, you know, we talked about drawing. I say to medical students, draw yourself working as a doctor. In this entire class of medical students, maybe eight years five or so, one student didn't even draw a human being in the picture, all kinds of equipment. All the other students drew themselves sitting behind a desk with their diploma on the wall. 
no patient in any of those pictures. One picture showed a young man kneeling in front of a lady in a wheelchair, handing her a tissue. That kid knows what it's like to be a doctor. He doesn't have to cure her disease. He can help her when her nose is running, say, and give her a tissue. He's done something for her. She'll be grateful for it. But we're not trained that way. And in case, you know, you weren't aware of this, doctors have a higher suicide rate than the general population. And the ones who have the highest rate are anesthesiologists. And that really... Really? Yeah. Higher than dentists? Uh, higher than psychiatrists? Yes. Yes. Anesthesiologists. And Why is that? It. Because, well... Why would you want to be a doctor so you can put people to sleep? <laughs> you don't have any relationship. I mean, you could. Yeah, I know some anesthesiologists who talk with patients before they ever take them into the OR. You know, they're different. They're my kind. They know me. But most of them, what are you going to do? You come in, they numb you or put you to sleep, and then sit there and check your blood pressure for an hour, two, or three. And they're not relating. I learned to put my desk against the wall, literally. So when patients came into my office to see me, some of them would say, huh, this doesn't seem like a doctor's office. You're damn right, because the desk isn't in the middle of the room with you on one side, me on the other, and now with the computer added in. Um, oh, and on the wall, all the things you're going to die of, you know, posters about heart disease, uh, diabetes, and everything else. No, me, I put lovely pictures up on the wall, painted the room in a nice, comfortable, friendly color, you know, more like a living room would be. And that's why they'd come in and, oh, feels funny in here. Yeah, but it felt good, and uh, it worked. And I may say, because I did a lot of pediatric surgery, the kids were wonderful teachers. You know, they, they let me know what worked and what didn't work. And on my website, as a matter of fact, you can see how important doctors' words are. There's an article called Deceiving People Into Health. Now, let me put it this way. If I lied to you and you got better faster because I lied to you, would you be mad at me? You know, it, we can call it hypnosis if we want, whatever you want to call it. But I realized kids had faith in me and believed in me. So when they heard me say something, they accepted it. The trouble was was that I didn't realize they interpreted my words in a different way. So the thing that became a big laugh in the operating room was I said to children in the emergency room, we're taking you up to the operating room. You'll go to sleep when you go in the operating room. Now, I thought I'm reassuring them that they'll know I'm talking about anesthesia. But what do you think happened to the kids when we wheeled them in the operating room? They fell asleep before we even put them on the operating table. They went through the doors. Oh, and one boy, I always laugh. He flipped over on his stomach. He was a kid with appendicitis. So I picked him up, turned him back over again, and he started screaming. What are you doing? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm turning you over so I can get your appendix out. You told me I'd sleep. I sleep on my stomach. And we all <laughs> I had a bargain with him to get him to turn over, you know, that I can't get your appendix from the back. <laughs> you have to help me. But 
that's when I realized how powerful my words were. So I used them carefully and said them because I knew they had meaning. And that's why, yes, you could say I was lying to people. But if I lied to you and it helped you, what, what are you going to get upset about, you know? Um, but it meant a lot, and I learned how to talk. And the staff in the operating room always got a kick out of it. Uh, and it helped them because I always say nobody's against success. Even bringing music into the operating room. I was talking to a nurse uh, whose husband is at Yale now. And he said, oh, there's music in all the operating rooms now. It wasn't until I brought it in and I started playing music to relax everybody. And I was called an explosion hazard because the anesthetic gases are explosive. But, you know, we're careful. I'm telling them I'm not going to, you know, not watch where I'm plugging things in or what I'm doing. <laughs> and in a short time, everybody had what was then called the boom boxes. You know, we didn't have all the tapes. I mean, we had the tapes, not this. And everybody was playing music because they realized it helps everybody and it works. And the humorous side is when the patients weren't asleep but under spinal and things like that, I'd hear them suddenly say, is everything all right? I'd say, well, what are you worried about? What's the matter? Listen to your music. Frank Sinatra, all of me. Why not take all of me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I didn't know what was every tape, you know, the, every song that was on there. Yeah, that and Amazing Grace. Sometimes people would say, am I okay? You know, Amazing Grace would start playing. But yes. again, it got people to laugh and smile. And you don't, you don't have fear. I always say, if you're laughing, you can't be afraid. And so I would act very silly at times in the operating room in order to get people to relax. Well, listen, one more story. This woman was in such a panic over her surgery. It really scared me because I thought she may have, you know, a cardiac arrhythmia. Something happened. I mean, she was in such a panic. So I stood in the hallway trying to calm her down for about an hour. And then, and then I said to her, look, uh, it's not working. You know, you're not calming down. We, we have to go in and go ahead. So I wheel her in in the stretcher, and she sits up and says, thank God all these wonderful people are going to take care of me. And I thought, if I say that, that's not going to mean anything to her. So I said, I've worked with these people for years. They're not wonderful people. What do you think the result was? <laughs> everybody laughed. Yeah, everybody <laughs> burst out laughing. And we were family. You know, there was no fear left in the room. Because we're yeah. family now. Yeah. And That's again, crazy. back to drawings. If you ask people, and I would recommend it to everybody who's listening to this, you're going to the hospital or you're going to try and decide what job to take or anything draw a picture of your choices if you're going to the hospital draw yourself in the operating room and if it's an empty room and all you use is a black crayon don't go for surgery now either not either don't do it or change your attitude towards it right and how you do that yeah. create a new picture in your mind they see yourself going to the hospital lots of wonderful people take care of you the family in the waiting room uh and it's, it's totally different results of the surgery then. 
We're going to go ahead and take our only break of this hour. We are talking with Dr. Bernie Siegel, author of Love, Medicine, and Miracles, and many, many other good things, some of which we're going to talk about after this brief break. And thank you for staying with us. You're listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. People join Walk MS to raise awareness and funds that change the world for everyone affected by multiple sclerosis. MS attacks the brain and spinal cord. It's the most common neurological disease leading to disability in young adults. Walk MS brings communities together, creating teams with friends, loved ones, and coworkers to rally around those we care about and end MS forever. Join us. Together we are stronger. Walk MS fundraising accelerates research breakthroughs and life-changing breakthroughs. It will take all of our passion, determination, and fundraising to end MS forever. Together, we can change the world for people with MS. Join us. Register today, start a team, and raise funds at walkms.org. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest this week, Dr. Bernie Siegel. Bernie, if people would like to connect with you, what what is your website and tell us about your books and blogs and anything that people might be interested in? Well, the website is BernieSiegelMD.com. S-I-E-G-E-L. BernieSiegelMD.com. And all my books are listed there, the CDs we've done to help people meditate, relax, prepare for surgery, whatever. Um, also, there is uh, Wisdom of the Ages is a store that uh, family members run. And you can order all those things through them. And you can mention me and tell them, I said, to give you the discount. But I think it's the number six. If you put that in one of the spots, on the order form, you get a discount automatically, uh, you know, through the website and all that. Um, but it, it, if you're ready, order them. 
and and make them a part of your life. Don't question. Believe me, it all works. And uh, from my experience, uh, you know, that even like the title of my first book, the word miracles is in, in lots of them, because they're not miracles. Uh, they happen uh, because of natural forces. I always say, I've been reading a book, uh, you know, about creation, physics. I mean, we're talking about billions of years of life and how the hell did we form life and people? And uh, it, it, and I think, the, I always say the physicists, uh, astronomers, they're much more mystical and easier to talk to, uh, you know, than uh, a plumber, let's say, because they have uncertainty. They can't explain everything. So their minds are open. And we have to remember, I love the word potential. You know? I mean, a woman went home with cancer. Big tumor. You could feel. She went home to die. She came back to the office a couple of months later, and my partner yelled, Hey, Bernie, come in here. Her tumor's gone. And I said to her, What did you do? She said, Oh, you know. I said, I may know, but tell them. Oh, I left my troubles to God. Boom. Now... How many people are capable of that, though? You know, when you really think of living in that kind of peace. And, uh, yeah, I work at it every morning. I struggle with God <laughs> and, um, you know, helping me and uh, not just complaining about it. And uh, it's that power that is here and exists. I mean, one of the things I always talk about is the amazing aspect of creation. And water is a wonderful symbol. Because I always wondered why Jesus said to, uh, oh, I forgot his name, the other character that he was talking to in the Bible, but he said, we're water and spirit. And I thought, why didn't he say to him, we're earth or clay and spirit? Because you don't hear about uh, Adam being made out of water. But yet, when you look at creation, things didn't start until water was available. But if you freeze something, think about your house. When it's hot, where is the warm air? In the attic, not in the basement. Um, mm. But when you freeze any liquid, it becomes solid, more dense, and would sink if you dropped it. In, into the you know the same liquid. In other words, think of lava. It's hot. It's running. It freezes. You got a big rock. But think of water. You make some ice cubes. You drop them in a glass of water. Where did they go? To the top and float. And look at all that we're talking about now. As the Earth is getting warmer, and mm. water levels are rising. Who figured out water should become less dense when it's frozen, when nothing else does? And that's why I'm so fascinated by the wisdom of life and creation, God. And, um, you know, I, I always say to people, live by your experience. Because we, I mean, religion, uh, and I'm not picking on any religion, but um, I began to study religion because I saw for some people it was a handicap. They were feeling guilt, you know, that God gave them cancer because 
they were going to church or doing the right things. And and when uh, Maimonides, a couple of thousand or so years ago, said two things that are still true today. If people took as good care of themselves, they do their animals, they'd suffer fewer illnesses. Now, I believe example, that. An example, a few years ago, in Cat Fancy magazine, was this lady who wrote a full-page letter telling people that she and her husband smoke, and they have eight cats, and the cats are getting sick, and one got lung cancer. So I say to an audience, all right, what do you do? And if they say, stop smoking, I say, wrong answer. Because in the magazine, the lady wrote, this is a quote, Doug and I now smoke in the yard. We love our cats more than the convenience of smoking indoors. We're not killing our cats anymore. We hope you're not killing yours. How she can write that, you know, she's killing herself, and so is the husband, because they don't love themselves as much as they do their cats. And so I try to get people to love themselves as well. And uh, it, it's all about relationships. I mean, you have to understand your body chemistry is changed. When we study actors, if you draw blood from people in a tragedy versus a comedy, the tragedy their immune function is down, stress hormone levels are up. And in the comedy, hormone, I mean, the uh, immune function is up, stress hormones are down. You know, Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. People have to understand that their attitude, their feelings, have a great deal to do with their health. And again, I got criticized. You're asking patients what's going on in their life. Why are you blaming them for being sick? I said, I'm not blaming them. I'm trying to help them get well. Because right. if they see what's going on in their life that's stressful, then they can change it. Or remember a lawyer who developed cancer who wanted to be a violinist, but his parents wouldn't accept him as a violinist. But when he got cancer, he started playing his violin, got a job at an orchestra, and didn't die <laughs> when he was supposed to, you know? Because then he's living his authentic life, and his body is getting a live message, not a, a die message. One of the things that you have available, and now in paperback, is 365 oh, prescriptions yeah. for the soul. And the, on your website, you, you have those listed, uh, some of them that you talk about. The most recent one is prescription 122, getting to know you and it it kind of goes along with what you're talking about mm. here is that you know if you when you when you know who you are when right. you can when you can tolerate and appreciate your own company that there is a different path a different way of being and and hopefully one where you do love yourself more where you spend time alone and you say, you know, I'm kind of good company to be with. And and Gary and I right. have kind of said that individually. We spend a lot of time together, but when we are each spending time alone, we like our own company. We don't always have to be with other people. And I think that's important for your health to be able to like yourself. Uh, and and that, that is, isn't that part of what it is that you're saying there get to know yourself and like yeah. yourself the biblical line he who seeks to save his life will lose it you think of that violinist 
becomes a lawyer so his parents don't reject him and throw him out of the house. But then the next line, he who's willing to lose his life will save it. And when he leaves, loses the untrue self that was imposed on him, he goes ahead and saves his life. It's literally true and makes that kind of difference. And I know also it took me time to be very comfortable with myself. You know, just what you were saying. Uh, it's like I always had to be with somebody or doing something. And now I realize, you know, I'm never alone. You know, whether it's the spiritual aspect or just how I feel about myself. And I may say, my wife and I had quite a love. And we always felt like one person. In other words, it, it's hard to describe, but, uh, you know, if we're sitting in the kitchen... It was like only one person was in the kitchen. And it took me a lot of years to realize the two of us don't need anything because we have each other. And when I would travel, that's when I would feel I left a part of me behind. I've written poems like that. You yes. Know? And, and that all I can say is that I think that's what love makes happen, that you become one. You're okay when you're apart. You're more complete when you're together. And I have to tell you one, you, my wife always had a wonderful sense of humor. But it just happened because of some things she was doing. When I was traveling and going to the hospital particularly, she would make lunch for me. And it's uh, a lunch box with the word love all over it. And inside, when I'd open it at lunchtime, there would always be a note, you know, uh, have a nice day, X's and O's and love. One day, I had a horrible day. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean it was so busy, so many emergencies. I was exhausted, and I never even had time to eat. And then towards the end of the day, finally, everything quiets down. No more calls in the emergency room. Ugh. I go take my pail, and I open it. And the paper said, hold on. Didn't say I love you said, hold on. So I thought, what an intuitive woman. She knew it would be a horrible day. I'm going to hold on. I'll get through the day, and I'll thank her when I get home. And I held on. That evening I got home, I said, I have to thank you for that wonderful note. He said, what are you talking about? I said, hold on. He said, honey, it was a big sandwich with a lot of vegetables. I wanted you to hold on. <laughs> That's in my next book. Because <laughs> oh. I think oh, at the I end of the book, it. I'm going to say to people, hold on. You know, but <laughs> so that stayed with me forever. But, uh, you know, that's her kind of sense of humor. But um, it's it just, you know, humor, as I say, uh, and this is something I recommend to women. When your husband's angry, and my wife would do this. I mean, uh, you know, I'd get angry. We got five kids. What's going on in the house? Not to mention a bunch of animals. And she'd say, "You're so handsome when you're angry." Hmm. Oh. <laughs> you know, I would have I, a big I, smile and yeah. there's no anger anymore. I, I'm going to tell one on on me and Gary, and that is that you know when somebody's angry, you don't want to be around them because they're all prickly and their energy is all terrible and negative. And some years ago, we concluded 
that when somebody is angry is when they need love the most. And so, and so rather than, rather than running away, we've got a little magnet that says that uh, hugging can turn a grizzly into a teddy bear. I'm so glad you said that because (laughs) what I tell people is to be a love warrior. I mean that literally. Somebody is driving you crazy. Say to them, I love you. Yes. You'll be amazed. Let me tell you two stories. One, somebody in our cancer group, you know, heard me talk about that. Be a love warrior. She said, you're nuts. I have alcoholic parents. I was telling them I love them for three months and they don't answer. She came to the next meeting smiling. So what happened there? I was late for work, so I ran out of the house. My parents are in the street screaming, you forgot something. I said, I have all my papers. I have my lunch. What are you talking about? You didn't say I love you today. And she said, we were hugging and crying in the street. And it changed their life. And that's the part I've learned, how powerful. We were up in Cape Cod one summer, and traffic was horrendous. And there was a young man and his girlfriend in the car behind us screaming, cursing. I mean, it was horrible. You know, he's mad at the traffic. And I'm the car in front of him getting all this screaming and yelling. And the cop said, it's not my job to tell him to be quiet. So I got out of the car with our kids yelling, he could have a gun, what are you doing? I went over to him and I said, I want you to know something. I love you. I'm sorry your parents don't. He shut down, made a U-turn, and drove away. And I hope he went home to talk to his parents. There was another violent lady in the street, in the parking area outside the supermarket, who was screaming at everybody. And she had a big pocketbook, and no wonder she had a gun in it. Um, I mean, she was really going nuts. And then she starts looking at me, and I thought, maybe it's my shaved head. I don't know why she picked me out. And, but again, I said to her, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want you to know I love you. And she turned got in the car and drove away. And I can tell you, a big crowd came over to me and said, thank you. And I say again, and, and I mean this literally, I'd rather die loving somebody than hating them. So, and, and you see it, I can remember way back when I started reading a lot of literature from the concentration camps about survival, you know, the attitude that people had and what a difference it made you know, more often when you were helping other prisoners, you were more likely to survive than if you're cursing the people who threw you in prison. Yes, I remember reading in a book about the Holocaust that camp survivors established what what became known as a gift relation mm. to each other, a gift relationship. It could right. be a piece of stale bread right. that you, you hold on here, take this, you're hungrier than me, and it might not even been true. Maybe you really wanted that piece of bread, but they would give it to a uh, member of these these hovels, these these hell holes they were living in, and they strengthened the bonds between each other. And those people were far likelier to survive than the ones right. who thought it's every man for himself. You know. Yeah, I have uh, in medical journals articles by physicians who were thrown into the camp with their community and couldn't believe what 
the attitude of the person did for their survival. You know, that he noticed those who had the desire to survive kept working. You know, even though they were being starved and everything else, they they just kept going with that will to live and uh, the ability to keep loving and helping. And uh, what a difference it made. Because for the physicians, I mean, they were really shocked. You know, they expect everybody's going to have the same problem and die. And he noticed that it made an enormous difference. Uh, when you had that desire to live and to help others. Well, you know, Viktor Frankl, that wonderful sentence, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. Yes. And that's so true of all of us, you know, when you're out helping others, what a difference it makes. And I know how good I feel when I can help someone else, it's such a gift. And, you know, sometimes it's it's just not even much more than a few words. One of the things on your website I saw was an entry about praise. The sweetest of all sounds is praise. And sometimes just a couple of, of, of praise words to a stranger about yep. something you that you notice, that you like, um, can make all the difference and, yeah, and I- turn somebody's frown upside down. That's why I like reading my 365 book, because I can't remember 365 stories, so I every year I read them again. And one was about, I think it was in San Francisco, we were going somewhere to a meeting, and this lady was on the street, needed money, and I, I felt so guilty, because we were, you know, going by her, and I didn't, I couldn't stop and hand her money, so I literally said to her, I'm sorry, I, I can't. I'm, you know, and she said, you don't have to be sorry. It's all right. And I thought, you know, it's like meeting Mother Teresa. I mean, she was so sweet and gentle to me while I'm feeling all the guilt. And what a difference that lady made. You know, I uh, it doesn't compare to any of the stories you shared with us today, Bernie, but just as a little anecdote, once in a while I get a wake-up call and I get it in a way that allows me to incorporate it into my attitude toward life and toward my relationship. One time, this is a few months ago, Suzanne and I went to our local Costco in order to pick up our goodies, buying in bulk as we do, grape nuts by the barrel, etc. And we walked from where we parked at some distance from the entrance. I mean, it wasn't a mountain hike, but I mean, we just had to walk a little bit. And wouldn't you know, there was an elderly couple and I can't duplicate their Jersey accents, but the long and the short of it is that they were having a hell of a row. The wife apparently thought that he parked too far away, and he was fine with it. They both were perfectly ambulatory. You know, nobody was hobbled, nobody was limping. And she's saying things like, I told you not to park there. I said, park over here. Look how far we've walked. You parked too far away. And he's giving her one of these, ah. And she said, listen to me, you should park where I told you to park. And he goes, we're fine where we are. No, we're not. Look at how far we've gone. And they are trying to cross and their cars going back and forth. Fortunately, they didn't get hit, but it didn't seem to matter much to them because they were carrying on this fight more her than him Mm -hmm. as they were going in the right direction to get into Costco. And as we reached the little crosswalk, I said to Suzanne, how about we make a pact that we never become 
that elderly couple. We are of mature years, but as we age, let's not be like that because I don't want to have to say at the end of my days that I got to be good at fighting with Suzanne as we got into our 70s, hopefully our 80s, and turned every day into a sparring match. That's not what I am on earth for. And I felt bad for those people. And I felt bad for anybody who would be at the effect of that much anger. Yeah, that's why I say Bobby was so good at, you know, you're so handsome when you're angry or you're upsetting the pet. That was another one. You know, and I always say, honey, you're not dealing with my problem. But once you laugh, the problem isn't a problem anymore, you know. And uh, we need to know how to deal with each other. And I don't mean deal in a negative way, not like, you know, business deal, but to work things out together and have those kinds of lines. Oh, one one couple. I I used to give people um, a pin. Oh, dear. Uh, it was a one word, um, you know, about, yeah, attitude. That's it. it. It was a word attitude made into a pin. And I'd give it to people to think about their attitude. And this one wife said, when her husband wasn't doing the right things for his health, because he had cancer also, she would just walk over, take the pin that he was wearing, and spin it around, say, honey, straighten out your attitude. And it's such a wonderful simple way of saying something to your husband and not, hey, you dumbbell, what's the matter with you? You're going to kill yourself. Um, honey, straighten out your attitude. And he was fine with it and <laughs> proud of his wife. And I think if each person could work out those kinds of oh, little passwords, so to speak, then, again, you could say things to each other and not create the negativity and end up with a smile. Of, uh, perfect perfect dr bernie siegel so wonderful to have you back for visit number nine it was a great conversation and you have wonderful stories to share and more to share next time and there will be a next right. time good luck on completing your next book we look forward to Thank interviewing you, yeah, you in regards and, and and we can talk about miracles and remember this a closing word when you live in your heart magic happens I love it. I like that. Dr. Bernie Siegel, thank you, sir, so much for joining us again today. Thank you, folks, for listening to us. Coming up next. Christine Upchurch, followed by Susan Harmon, followed by American Road Trip Talk at 2 o'clock. We'll take to the road again. We're going to talk to the marketing director of a huge car museum. That's going to be fun. Stay tuned to 1150 AM and make this the start of a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.